Mike introduced us to chapter 40, and I just want to uh, narrate what, what takes place in chapter 40 uh, to lay the groundwork to what we'll see in chapter 41, which is where we'll spend a little time today. So here's what happened in chapter 40. The Babylonians, as you know, came into the land on conquest. It was successful. They burned uh, the temple in Jerusalem to the ground, destroyed the city, took people captive. One was Jeremiah. You know about him. And he was God's representative to the people. Uh, one of the agents of the Babylonians, a man named Nebuzaradan, went to Jeremiah and said, you could go free because we realize you did not lead in the revolt against Babylon. So Nebuzaradan extended options to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you'd like, you can join the group of captives and go off to Babylon. If you do, I will promise your safety. On the other hand, if you'd like to remain in the land, that too you could do. But my recommendation is that you go to be near a person named Gedaliah. You'll see his name in chapter 40. He was an Israelite appointee of the Babylonians. That's how they did it in those days. If you conquer a land, you don't necessarily leave in it your own to control the land. You find puppets who'll carry out your policies with regard to the people in the land. Makes sense. Don't want to spread yourself too thin. Also, if you leave in the land someone who'll serve you, the conquering nation, that person already knows the people in the land, the culture, speaks the language, and so on. Good strategy. So they chose Gedaliah, an Israelite, to be the governor of the land. This character, Nebuzaradan, says, So, Jeremiah, if you choose to remain in the land, make sure you settle near Gedaliah because he'll protect you and provide for you. There are still people who hate your guts. They want to kill you. Uh, you stand a chance of surviving under his protective umbrella. Not only that, uh, if there's a scarcity of food that you may run into, he'll be able, as the governor, to provide for you. So that's kind of what's happening in chapter 40. Also, though the Israelite army has largely been decimated at this point and surrendered, as is true in many military campaigns, there remained pockets of resistance in the land. And so there were some still led by military commanders who were not yet ready to surrender to Babylon. Two are mentioned in chapter 40. One is named Ishmael. Do not confuse that Ishmael with the one we read about much earlier in the biblical record in the book of Genesis. Same name, different person. This Ishmael is a descendant of David in the royal line and served in the administration of a prior king of Israel, King Zedekiah. So he's one commander left in the land. And the second mentioned in chapter 40 is a fellow named... Um, Yohanan, spelled Yohanan. Yohanan is Johanan is probably how you'll see it, but that his name is pronounced differently. Why are these two mentioned? Because they're going to perform a significant role in the next chapter. 
this is part of the situation in chapter 40, and there's more. When the Babylonians were about to come into the land, some of the Jews left to avoid the Babylonian onslaught, and they went eastward, crossing the Jordan River, and populated a country uh, in which lived the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. Uh, would you like to guess as to what modern-day country those people groups lived in? Jordan, absolutely, Jordan. So the um, fleeing Israelites went eastward, crossed the Jordan River, and located themselves in present-day Jordan. But when they found out Gedaliah was appointed by the Babylonians and that the worst was over, they came back into the land. So those people, along with the commanders, Ishmael and Johanan, went to Gedaliah and said to him, if we lay down our arms and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, what's in store for us? Gedaliah said, you'll be fine. I'm a partner of his. I can protect you and assure you, you could return to a relatively normal lifestyle. You can uh, invest in agricultural pursuits. You'll be fine. So that's the situation. Looks kind of good in a sense. Looks like the worst is over. War has ended. Uh, what the Babylonians were going to do, they did. Uh, normalcy, to a large extent, can proceed. Looks good. But appearances are deceiving. And under the surface was a simmering political intrigue that was quite amazing. Uh, here's part of it. Um, Yohanan, Johanan, becomes privy to a plot to assassinate the governor, Gedaliah. He finds out that Ishmael wants to kill him. He goes to Gedaliah to warn him. And he says, Governor, uh, your trusted countryman, Ishmael, is actually in cahoots with your enemy, the king of the Ammonites known as Baalis, King Baalis. And King Baalis is setting up your countrymen to take your life. Which leads to the question, how could it be that Ishmael would come to be in cahoots with the king of Ammon? So here's what happened. In uh, the year 593 B.C., there was a secret meeting of certain nations, uh, and it involved Judah um, and the Ammonites and others. Why? Because the Babylonian Empire was on the rise, and there was talk of a coalition so as to pose resistance to the Babylonians. Nothing, it seems, historically really came of that meeting. But some years later, in 588 B.C., there was another kind of a secret meeting. This one was initiated by the new pharaoh of Egypt, 
named Hophra, Pharaoh Hophra, called another meeting of the Israelites, the Ammonites, and the country of the nation of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Would you like to venture a guess as to what modern-day country we could find Tyre in? Lebanon. Lebanon on the Mediterranean coast, northern Mediterranean coast. So uh, the Egyptian pharaoh called a meeting of these nations essentially saying, um, if you are willing to get together with me in opposing the Babylonians, we can resist. They agree. With the strength of Egypt behind them, these nations decide they can defeat the Babylonians. Well, the Babylonian king finds out about this, Nebuchadnezzar, and as is no surprise to you, he wasn't happy with this. So he has to decide which of these nations he's going to pick off first. And uh, you'd be surprised to know who helped him in his decision-making. It was God himself, not his God, your God. <laughs> God directed him to attack Judah. Yes, God directed the Babylonian leader to attack the Israelites, God's own people. Why? They rebelled. They sinned. They were stiff-necked. God had to bring them to their knees. Destroy them? No. Deliver them from sin. So uh, he does that the king of Babylon, he uh, attacks the land of Canaan, ancient Israelites, and with a great measure of success, as you know. He burns down the temple which stood in Jerusalem to the ground. He destroys the city. He takes thousands off into exile into Babylonian territory. The king of Ammon, Baalus, is happy. <laughs> it's not like he was a friend of Israel and Israel was a friend of his. This was a political partnership of convenience for each other's interests, you see. So when Israel went down, the king of Ammon was thrilled until the king of Babylon appointed a puppet governor in Israel who was friendly to him, Gedaliah. Now the king of Ammon says, oh, no, if the Israelite, enter into a rather peaceful time of coexistence with the Babylonians that will free up the Babylonians to attack us. So he comes up with a plan to destabilize what's going on in Israel. And one way to destabilize it is to get Ishmael, who probably didn't like Gedaliah for his... Uh, partnership with the Babylonians, maybe the king of Ammon paid him, I don't know, set up Ishmael, who would have entree into uh, time with the governor to kill him, assassinate him. What would that do? It would create instability in Israel, it would destabilize the nation, thus obligating the attention of the Babylonian king. If Nebuchadnezzar said, things are not so hot with those people in that land, i got to spend more time subjugating them, then that would distract him from attacking the Ammonites. Can you see what's going on? Let me ask you this. Do you realize 
that nothing has changed. <laughs> Here's what I mean. We, we are talking about complicated, behind-the-scenes political intrigue amongst the rulers of the world, working out their plans, carving up the nations, smoky room, closed-door meetings. Their constituencies know not of. <laughs> but the power brokers of the world on an international scene are making all these decisions. Do you realize nothing has changed? You and I know something of what's transpiring on the international scene. And for most of us, it's distressing. Let's make it worse. You and I know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. We will be surprised one day to find out what we didn't know. And we shall. But right now, we know nothing. I don't know of my president's secret conversations with other people, leaders of the world. I don't know of secret conversations uh, between countries in the Middle East, between Russia and Iran. We, I mean, I, I, I don't know who the Israeli government's talking to, I, and neither do you. You can watch Fox, you can watch CNN, you can watch whatever you want. You're getting Zippo. So be encouraged. As bad as you think it is, it's worse. However, though political intrigue has not changed, something else has remained the same too, and that is the sovereignty of your God. Though you and I are not privy to closed-door meetings, secret political meanderings that take place behind the scenes, he sees and hears in secret. It's the quality he possesses called omniscience. He knows all things about all things. He's not taken by surprise, and he has the capacity to orchestrate international events in accordance with his ultimate redemptive plan. And that's what he's doing. So it's a little discouraging to feel a little manipulated by the power brokers of the world. Uh, on the other hand, be encouraged. Though you don't know what's going on, you know the one who does. <laughs> so relax. Uh, the Lord is on the throne. So anyway, all this stuff is going on now. Uh, Johanan finds out about this plot to assassinate the governor, Gedaliah. He goes to Gedaliah and tells him about it. And he says, Ishmael is in cahoots with the king of Ammon, and he wants to kill you. And he said, Gedaliah, I'm loyal to you and the nation. Here's what I'll do. It's a good thing. I'll kill, under your authority, I will kill uh, Ishmael. What say you, O governor? And the governor says, thank you. Nah. And he says stuff like, uh, you know, I don't think so, Yochanan, Johanan, yeah, you're a little overly dramatic. Thank you for the counsel, but I, I know Ishmael. He's really a good guy. You know, you know what? He's such a great dresser. 
I'm making up some stuff, but this is <laughs> essentially the sense of what's going on. He's a likable person. He's so conversational and he's good looking and, you know, the whole deal. Went to good schools and whatever. Neighbors like him. Good speaker. You know, stuff like that. And so Gedaliah rejects counsel. And on that basis alone, you get the horrors of what about, about what we'll read now in the next chapter, chapter 41. Uh, because appearances are not what they seem to be. Appearances are not what they seem to be. And so uh, he makes a bad decision on the basis of appearances. So here's what you get. Now chapter 41. It says, in the seventh month, and uh, by their time reckoning, that puts it in September, our September, or October, somewhere in there. Seventh month, Ishmael, well, you know who he is now because he's the guy who we just spoke about. Ishmael, son of Netaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, and one of the chief officers of the king. See, royal family, he's a descendant of King David, and he also served in the political administration of a prior king named Zedekiah. You know what, folks? Based on birth, you would expect more from this character than what you're going to get. You're going to see horrendous evil by this man who you would have expected and me more from because he was not raised in a di deprived, disadvantaged background. He was in the royal line. We can't pin uh, poor schools on this guy. <laughs> We can't pin economic deprivation on this guy. We can't speak about uh, abuse, abandonment, neglect by his parents. We cannot do any of that. Somehow, the first birth does not make us so hot, folks. Even if the first birth is into a royal family, Folks, you can be born with a silver spoon in your mouth and there still be plenty of darkness in your heart. The first birth does not guarantee the goodness of humankind, the biological birth. It's the second birth. It's when you're born again. In fact, the Bible says of the first birth, we're all conceived in sin. I know this is tough because you think of a baby. They're the cutest little critters, are they not? They're cute. Coo, they make good sounds and stuff. But if you got one of those or have had one, just give it a few days and you'll find out they are demanding, self-centered, narcissistic, obnoxious little critters. They do not care about your need for sleep and your schedule. Feed me now! <laughs> and you never taught them that. They came with it. They're conceived in sin. I want to tell you something. If you want a cute little thing, get you a puppy because the babies ain't the babies as soon as they get more and more opportunity are going to reveal their true colors we inherited this from first man adam welcome to the family of humankind you see that's not fair well take it up with god it's not about fair it's an inherited inclination to sin now, that doesn't mean we've sinned in the same fashion as Adam. I'm talking about this, 
the inclination to sin. That's why we need the sacrifice of the second Adam. That's, that's how the Lord Jesus is referred to in the New Testament. Did you know that? Th we inherit certain things from first Adam, and we inherit other things from second Adam. You say it's not fair for me to inherit the sin nature of first Adam. Take it easy. It's also not fair for you to inherit the righteousness of second Adam. Don't be talking to God about what's fair. Just say, oh, God, don't treat me fairly. Thank you for treating me graciously. You inherited sin nature from first Adam. You inherited right standing with the Father from second Adam. That's not fair. That's grace and mercy. Okay, so you would expect more from this character, but he doesn't show it. So he, Ishmael, along with ten men, came to Mizpah. That's where Gedaliah set up his little government in the land. And while they were eating bread together there, now wait a second. Some of you will go out later and have lunch together because you'll enjoy each other's company and all the rest, and you'll go to some place, Luby's or so, I don't know, wherever you want to go. It's a good thing, but it's entirely different than having bread together in the Middle East. Uh, Western hospitality is nothing in comparison to Middle Eastern hospitality. On our last recent trip to Israel in January, we were invited into the home of a wonderful Arab uh, family in the northern part of Israel. And we were not hungry. Too bad. You will eat what this family has graciously provided. And it was a ton. It's Middle Eastern hospitality. And that we're invited in means I, by the leader of the home, this man, I trust you to treat my home and my family with respect. You will take no advantage of my hospitality now. It's Middle Eastern hospitality. It is very, very important that this guy took this opportunity to do what he did. has ramifications we Westerners cannot fully appreciate. So while they're eating bread together in Mizpah, verse 2, Ishmael, and the ten men with him arose and struck down. This is the circumstance under which they killed Gedaliah with the sword. Ishmael, verse 3, also struck down all the Jews who were with him and the Chaldeans who were there. Another name for uh, Babylonians. And it happened the next day after the killing when no one knew about it. probably took place at night. And Ishmael was good at being bad. He was really, really good at being really, really bad. So the horrendous crime was not known right away. By the way, we keep on, you know, you watch crime reports and someone does a terrible evil and the, I the neighbors say, wow, he seemed like such a nice person. I hope you increasingly are putting less confidence as the days go on in appearances. There's no such thing as a psychopath who doesn't appear as a nice person. That's how they operate. Ted Bundy, nice person. Jeffrey Dahmer. John Wayne Gacy. Gee, I know too much about these guys. <laughs> <coughs> they were involved in the community, worked with children, fine, upstanding citizens, mowed their lawn, smiled at you when you pulled into your driveway and committed horrific evil. It's a capacity to do bad so good that no one would believe it. 
till it happens. Please put less and less confidence in the flesh, your own and the fleshly people living around you. Trust the Lord Jesus only. You will not be disappointed. So anyway, uh, this is what he does. Now, in this circumstance, verse 5, 80 men came from three places in their name there, Shechem, Shiloh, Samaria. What are those places? They were three religious sites in ancient Israel as alternative places of worship to Jerusalem. They were in the northern part of Israel when there was the northern and southern kingdom. Instead of taking a big, long trip down to Jerusalem, people set up alternative religious sites here. Eighty such people come from these sites and travel uh, closer in to the heart of Israel with their beards shaved off, clothes torn, bodies gashed. What are those symbols of? Mourning. What do you think they're mourning? People who died, Jerusalem. What in particular? Temple. It'll be borne out. Look, and they bring with them, it says, having grain offerings and incense in their hands. Look, to bring to the house of the Lord. Temple in Jerusalem. But what's the problem? Ain't no temple. Destroyed. Why are they doing this? Because the site was still holy. Is it today? Sure it is. People from all over the world, Jews in particular, make pilgrimage to this very site. We call it the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall. It's not even a wall of the temple. It's simply a perimeter wall of the earthworks upon which the temple stood. And Jews go, come from all over the world. This very, the temple's not there. They still come. Notice what kind of offerings do these mourners bring with them? Grain offerings and incense. You want to say something about that stuff? Anything missing? Lamb. Sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. Why didn't they bring lambs, bulls, goats to offer in sacrifice? And this is taking place in the seventh month, probably during the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three Old Testament pilgrim feasts where Jews from all over went up to offer sacrifice to Almighty God. They're bringing grain and incense. Where's the meat? Where's the blood? Have any thoughts? There's no altar. Thank you. You are correct. The Babylonians decimated the functioning priesthood, destroyed the altar sacrifice, and burned down the very temple. These people know, therefore, lambs cannot be offered. So they substitute grain and incense. Maybe God will like the smell of the incense and that'll get him off our back. No. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Perhaps one of the most significant verses in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life I make, when we take Israel trips, mission trips, I make people memorize this. Where the few, Sarah's going to memorize this, whether she likes it or not. 
Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Is that true? Sure it is. If we wanted to, and don't worry, we won't, because I'm not a psychopath, uh, we can remove all your blood. And if we do that, we, in essence, have removed you. No blood, no life. God is simply making a biologically verifiable statement in Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement, which means a covering for sin, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, not the grain, not the incense. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Life for life. To redeem your life. There has to be life offered in your place. God said, I provide it. And God delivered those words in Leviticus 17, 11 through the highest rabbi we have, Moses. <laughs> he, why is he the highest? Because he was closest to direct revelation from God. He was on Mount Sinai. Moses delivered those words. But now you get to what we're reading in Jeremiah. And because there is no altar of sacrifice, the Jewish people decide, we'll, be, we'll bring grain and incense. Where does it say that God will accept anything but the blood of the lamb as a means of atonement for human sin? Where? It does not. That these people offered this tells me this is a man-made religion. Judaism is a man-made religion. It is not a biblical religion. One time I had a lively conversation with a rabbi. He told me with finger pointed, you are a traitor. You have abandoned the roots of our faith. To which I responded, no, you have abandoned the roots. I've returned to them. Where's the blood of the lamb? That's Rabbi Moses. That's no church thing. That's no Gentile thing. That's Torah. That's Holy Scripture given to us. Where's the blood? I know there's no temple, there's no priesthood, there's no altar of sacrifice, but you please tell me where, merely on the basis of those circumstances, God said, hey, let me just change things. Let me just tell you there's another way for me to redeem you. Nowhere. So, these people and ones like them have created new world religions, Judaism. Are there beautiful aspects to religion? Oh, yeah. I had some lady recently said, oh, we just attended an event at a synagogue. The singing was beautiful, everything. Oh, was so people were nice, you know, and everything. The liturgy was so beautiful. And I told her, to who? Not to God. It's a stench in his nostril. There's no such thing as fragrant incense which will appease the wrath of a holy God. The only thing that is a fragrant aroma to him is faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Ephesians calls that a fragrant aroma. Interesting. Uses the same metaphor. Religion has many beautiful aspects. I'm picking on my own, but I would love to pick on yours just as much. What all world religions have in common is that 
they are providing an unauthorized substitute for the blood of the lamb. Every world religion. Why do they all have that in common? Because every world religion has the same authorship, Satan. That's why they all, so if you look at Islam, if you look at Buddhism, Hinduism, in Iran, uh, Zoroastrianism is um, popular, uh, Catholicism, now boy, I'll be getting emails for that one, but before you get go crazy with me, uh, hear me out. Um, uh, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnessism, whatever you want to call humanitarian, human potentialism, you know, like Unity Church of Christianity they have downtown. Oh, my goodness. Be careful of appearances. Unity, church, Christianity. Come on, folks. Such a nice person, such a nice building, such good messages. Watch out for uh, people who will kill off your faith in Christ, just like Ishmael under wraps is about ready to kill off Gedaliah. Appearances deceive. Don't be a person of appearance. Be a person of biblical truth so you can discern what's real and what's not real. Anyway, what do they all have in common? Not necessarily bad things, horrific things. I didn't say that. That's the problem. Many really quite beautiful things. Acts of charity are good. Philanthropic efforts are good. Humanitarian deeds, uh, festivals, uh, celebrations, uh, um, fastings, things like that are all good. Uh, except they'd be substitutes for the blood of the lamb. It's unauthorized. So I ask you this. There is no temple. There is no altar. Where's the blood of the lamb today? The Lord Jesus. 2,000 years ago, there lived another man also named Yohanan. But you know him as John, the baptizer. His Hebrew name is Yohanan. He had followers. They're hanging out around Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago. Yohanan points his followers to the form of another. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who was John pointing to? John chapter 1, verse 29. Where is the lamb today? Where is the blood of the lamb? Offer it to Jewish people. Offer it to Gentile people. Offer it to all people. <laughs> this is God. Well, I shared this one time with someone. They said, that is so uncivilized, savage, repulsive, to which I said, absolutely. Worse than you think. Can you imagine when the temple stood, the endless succession of bulls and goats who were brought in procession, one person after the other, waiting for the priest to guide them in the process of transferring their sin onto the life of this innocent being, and then the bulls, the goats, the lambs, uh, their throats being cut, their bodies torn asunder, they being burned up in the fire and the altar of incense. They're not going voluntarily. Do you know what they smell like alive, let alone dead and burning? Do you know what sounds they make? Do you know how many priests were required, Levites, 
to offer the sin of atonement for ancient Israel? Hundreds and hundreds. You're darn tootin', repulsive, horrific, terrible smells and all the rest. That's what our sin is to a holy God. It is a stench in his nostrils. And it cost him a horrific price to clean it all up. So when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was pierced through, it wasn't neat. It wasn't antiseptic. It wasn't nice smelling. It was grotesque. His body was ripped apart. He was flayed raw. He suffocated on the cross. He didn't go quickly. He was publicly humiliated. He was stripped naked. He was sexually abused by the crowd. Yeah, it stinks. The whole thing stinks. That's what human sin is. And if you are repulsed by that, you underestimate how bad our sin is in the nostrils, how bad it smells in the nostrils of an unapproachably holy God. Who said, you don't deserve it. It's not fair. I'll become like unto you, but without sin, thus allowing me to receive your sin as your substitute. I'll do this in the form of an only begotten son because he's the only one who fulfills the prerequisite because on the divine side, he's fully God. And on the human side, he's fully man. I'll offer him as the cleansing agent. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. How? It takes red blood to cover for scarlet sin. And when Jesus went through an excruciating termination, he uttered these words, it is finished, paid in full. And all the religious, humanitarian, philanthropic days of fasting, elaborate song services, complicated liturgies, and incense investments, and all this kind of stuff cannot bring that verdict. It is finished. Only the blood of the Lamb. Where's the blood of the Lamb? Hollywood can come up with concerts to raise money for poor farm workers, can take up collections for needy people devastated by earthquake in Haiti. These are good things, but it doesn't cover up for the degradation of their immorality and sin. Where's the blood of the Lamb? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The destruction of the temple is no limitation on God's gracious provision of an atonement for us. In fact, all that is just a foreshadowing of ultimate realities. We don't need an endless succession of bulls and goats because Jesus was the ultimate lamb of God. I don't have to go up to the temple to find forgiveness. I could accept the blood of the lamb applied to my life and become the temple of the very spirit of God. You see where we are today? Don't cave in. How could so many devout, passionate, sincere people be wrong? Do you know what your argument is? It's an argument of truth by majority view. Are you so foolish? Does majority point of view determine truth? Or does truth determine truth? 
Could I tell you historically, yes, the majority of the human race has been wrong? Of course. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our message? It's a rhetorical question Isaiah offers, the implication being not many. <laughs> you don't find truth by seeing what the majority of humankind adheres to. The majority of humankind is on the way down, folks. On the way down. I don't want to be part of the majority. I would rather be someone enlightened by truth from the God who is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. Don't I want to be a nice guy. I want to be top. Listen, I'll go to Israel and like we go to the Western Wall. And we go up, men on one side, women on the other. And there are people, very passionate, putting their hands on the wall, praying, putting messages in, you know what I mean? Of whom Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not accept the righteousness of God. In other words, where's the blood of the lamb by which we are made whole and clean and right? You can pray at that brick wall all you want. <laughs> That's not how you get to God. Above the wall are people equally as devout, Muslim people at the third holiest site in Islam, uh, going to worship at the Dome of the Rock and at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Dome of the Rock is not actually a mosque. It's a monument. Across from it is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's a beautiful structure, golden-domed, magnificent uh, architecture and engineering and writing, Arabic writing on the outsides. And many people don't know this, but here's what some of the writing says. You people of the book, be warned. God has no son. Dome of the Rock. Wikipedia it. You can find it yourself. Put, just put down inscription on the Dome of the Rock and you'll see more. It's a polemic against Christianity. Third holiest side in Islam. Are the people zealous? Sure. Are they sincere? Sure. And then you can go down the blocks. You got the Jews down here and you got the uh, uh, Muslims up here. And then down the block you have a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre filled with all kinds of religious stuff. And people coming from all over the world to touch a Madonna here, an icon there. Where's the blood of the Lamb? I don't need a Madonna. I don't need an icon. I don't need a wall. I don't need a dome. I need the blood of the Lamb. I am not better than any of the people groups I just mentioned to you. But I sure have a better way. The blood of the Lamb. Access to the Father. I'm a son. I'm not an enemy. Flawed. Still sin. I got it in me. But less so. <laughs> because of him in me. Forgiven. Totally forgiven. 
I owe a debt to God, but it's a debt of gratitude. <laughs> no more. I can call him Abba. You could. Papa, Daddy, personal, close, familial relationship. I can approach his throne, which he describes as one of mercy and grace, not fear. Why? Because the Father's perfect love casts out fear. But where did all your righteous anger and wrath go? <coughs> Put on the shoulders of the Lamb of God in my place. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the moment upon which the sinless one took sin, which separated him from and what hurt him more than the physical travail was that moment of separation from Father, for me and you. I don't want religion. I hate it when someone says, oh, you're religious. <gasps> I don't want to worship at a wall, a building, jump through religious hoops. <coughs> I don't want I don't to know these eternal life. You know him now, and on the continuum, you just waltz into eternal life. Still communing with the very God who you know now personally because of the blood of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. Jewish sin? Sure. Gentile sin? Sure. Who takes away the sin of the world. It's never been different in any age for any people but that there is the necessity of the application of the blood of the Lamb to our hearts to cleanse us from sin. It has never, ever been different for any people group and for any period of human history. God has made it simple to us. And don't let religious stuff distract you. Paul says, I don't want you to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Plenty of religion all over the place. But where's the blood of the Lamb? Grain offerings, incense. So what? Pilgrimage to holy sites. So what? Where's the blood of the Lamb? Let's sing. And that way I'll calm down. Want to sing or give me some Valium? What? So <laughs> We'll sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount, cleansing agent I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's sing. Who's going to get us started? What can away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know nothing but the blood. See you next time, folks. God bless you.